and I've been uh, involved in this organization uh, for a while. Um, I recall back in 1984, I used to get the Ripon Journal. And uh, was anybody else a member of Ripon in 1984 on the day? <laughs> 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 okay, one, one other. Jim and Nancy had to have been there in 1984. But uh, I remember I was a lonely Republican at a law firm called Patton, Boggs, and Blow, uh, now called uh, Squire Patton Boggs, a combination of two firms that, that I've been associated with. And uh, I was a trade lawyer. And I was doing uh, work for then Vice President George H.W. Bush. Uh, I was an advanced person for him. And I think there were, uh, I don't know, maybe 120 lawyers in the firm, and perhaps two Republicans. And uh, that's changed a little bit. But uh, the point is, Ripon was sort of my lifeline to say, you know, we've got thoughtful Republicans here to focus on policy issues uh, and to care about the future of our country uh, just as deeply as as anyone, and um, you know, we have good solutions to actually address the real problems we face, and that's how I felt ever since. So, and Ripon, frankly, has um, you know ebbed and flowed since then. Uh, and to see this packed house this morning, I think is another demonstration of the fact that uh, Ripon's doing great, and and we need it right now because there are big challenges we face as a country. Uh, I know that it's difficult to focus on those policy challenges right now because there's so many distractions. But I would ask you to not just put your iPhones aside, but put your, uh, you know, your cable news and um, uh, Axios uh, top ten, and I um, uh, this morning, and uh, you know, all of these sort of distractions of the day relate to uh, the latest tweet from the White House, or um, you know, the, the latest uh, cable news, twenty-four hour news. Uh, urgent matter. Uh, I, I, I love watching the cable news shows myself and I go home at night as I did last night. I, I flip them on and I get um, alternative universes. You know, I can go from MSNBC and CNN to Fox and it's like I'm, I'm, I'm living in two different worlds. And that's where so many of our citizens are these days. Um, except that they're not flipping back and forth, they're staying on one or the other. And the same is true online, perhaps even more true, because there you can have all of your views confirmed. Um, and um, so the division in our country is driven by a number of things, I think, but that's one. And um, so let's put that aside for a second this morning. Let's go into a reflective mode and think about longer-term policy and what can we actually do in this city to help improve the lives of the people who I represent as an elected representative, you represent uh, either as someone who represents a company or a trade association, uh, or someone who just cares as a citizen about your family and, and your neighbors. And, and I think there's some great opportunities. And I'm going to focus on three of them quickly this morning, to open up to your comments or questions on anything, including what is the latest breaking news <laughs> on our um, cable news channels. Um, so let me start by talking about the uh, importance of public service by referencing again Marcus Akowitz and Zach Rudisil, who are here today. I'm blessed with having a terrific staff. Uh, both of these gentlemen could be making a whole lot more money in the private sector. Do not talk to them this morning about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I sometimes jokingly say that Zakowitz took an 80% pay cut when he came to work for me, and he, re he corrects me and says it was 83.5%, <laughs> which is true. Uh, 
But they're doing this because they, they, do, they do believe that the future can be brighter and that our office is dedicated to public policy and getting things done. And we've had a lot of success, as was noted, uh, but there's so much more to do. And it's our tax council, as you know, Mark, our chief of staff. So let, let's start with taxes, because this is one where over the last uh, few decades, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about doing something significant, as was done back in 1986. By the way, uh, in 1986, uh, Pete Rose was still playing for the Cincinnati Reds, and so long ago that was. Now, admittedly, he was a player manager, but he was still there. Um, every single one of our competitors in the world, all of them have reformed their tax code since then. And, and all of them, by the way, have lowered their business rates since then. All of them. And just about all of them have gone to a territorial tax system. And they've done all these things uh, you know, to make themselves more competitive, to be able to attract jobs and investment. And it's worked. And so regardless of what data you look at, uh, the number of U.S. companies that have inverted, the number of U.S. companies that have been acquired by a foreign entity, uh, the number of people who have invested overseas, uh, who are U.S. companies rather than here, including for their R&D, um, is going the wrong way. And fortunately, we have this amazing country, and we're able to a certain extent to rest on our laurels, and we do that, uh, but we do it to our own, at our own peril, because what's happening is there's a slow erosion of competitiveness. And there's a recent survey done by uh, the Business Roundtable and they were asked, you know, what would be the best way to get the economy moving and make us more competitive? And, and by far, the top issue was, was taxes. And admittedly, these are bigger companies that are international in scope, and so they have a particular interest in this because they compete every day with one hand tied behind their back. Uh, and that's just because of the tax. So there's another hand tied behind the back because of things like regulations and skills training and other things where uh, the cost of health care that, that we have to address. But on the tax front, what a huge opportunity. And by the way, the beneficiary of this is not those companies, uh, it's not the boardroom, certainly, it's not the CEOs, who do just fine, by the way, in fact, even better when there's an inversion, uh, it's the workers. And every economic study shows this. One reason I'm excited about Kevin Hassett going from uh, AEI, sort of the academic side of, 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 of Washington, over to the Council of Economic Advisors, where I think he will end up being confirmed as the chairman, is that he has written on this, and so have others, including the Congressional Budget Office. And they say that 70% of the benefit of a pro-growth tax reform along the lines of what's being talked about, lowering the rates, broadening the base, uh, will go to workers. 70% of the benefit workers in terms of salaries and benefits. So uh, if you are uh, passionate about tax reform, as I am, and as I worked with Jim and Nancy on for, for years, uh, I hope you will lead with that when you talk about it and when you explain the importance of it. You know, you know, as important as it may be to your company or trade association, it's important ultimately because it flows down to making our society better. Because I think our number one challenge today in our economy, and 0.7% growth in the first quarter is a scary number, uh, is the fact that we are not seeing an increase in compensation, wages, benefits, and yet we are seeing an increase in expenses, especially healthcare. Uh, but also education expenses are actually going faster than healthcare. The single largest expense, of course, is healthcare for most people who I represent. And this is an opportunity to actually do the thing that we talk about as Republicans and Democrats. Republicans don't talk about it as much as they should, in my view, which is how to get this economy moving in a broad sense, but specifically how to get wages growing again so that people feel like they do have an opportunity for themselves and their kids to achieve their dream, whatever it is. And the polling on this is pretty scary because when you ask people, do you think your kids are going to be better off than you? 
you know, in our lifetimes, uh, it's always been yes. It's not now. And a lot of it relates to this, what I call the middle class squeeze, which is just this notion that you can't get, you can't get ahead. So tax reform, it's not the silver bullet to solve all problems, but it's certainly one that will make a huge impact if we get it right. So I'm happy to talk about more details in a Q&A session if you all have questions, but I think we need to focus on getting this done and the benefits of it, maybe not get as mired down in the details until we can kind of figure out how to get the number of votes together to be able to get it done. And so when I talk about this, uh, as you may have noticed, uh, I'm not critical of other people's tax proposals, even though they might not be exactly what I want. I'm instead trying to be complimentary of people who are willing to stick their necks up and talk about tax reform and figure out, instead of just talking about it, how do we actually get it done? And I think we can. The second issue I want to mention is not one about the economy as much as it is about something much more personal, which is health care. And the House bill uh, passed, you know, kind of through this Washington prison we talked about earlier with a lot of uh, uh, late night arm twisting and, uh, you know, not as much transparency as some of us would like, including a CBO score. Uh, but they did get something done that would, I believe, lower premiums and lower deductibles and co-pays. And again, as I said earlier, this is one of the issues we have to address. We simply cannot afford to continue to have double-digit increases in premiums going forward. It's not sustainable. Uh, in Ohio, we've had a 91% increase in the individual market in the last four years, 82% increase in the small business market in terms of premiums. I'm not talking about deductibles for individuals, which, of course, has gone up just as, just as much, if not more. Uh, the Kaiser Foundation, I think their number is $4,700 per family is the average increase in health care costs over the last several years. That's as compared to the $2,500 decrease that was promised with regard to the Affordable Care Act. So this is a real problem. It's not a political problem. <laughs> it's a problem in the households of the people I represent. And it's a problem in the small businesses of the people I represent. It's a problem in my small business that my brother and sister and I own. It's a problem that we have to address to make our economy more competitive, as we talked about earlier, because we are competing on a global stage. So the unsustainability of this program is something that has to be addressed. And beyond the cost increases, there is simply an inability to have the Affordable Care Act work when insurers are, are pulling out. And this is happening all over the country. As you know, in Ohio, a third of our counties have only one insurer now, as compared to a year and a half ago where we had plenty. Uh, but this is being played out in other states in a much more dramatic way, where in some states there are literally no insurers in, in many of the counties. Uh, so that's for the exchanges, and that's for the Affordable Care Act part of it. Uh, but this is obviously something that if Hillary Clinton had been elected and a Democratic Congress had been elected, particularly uh, a Democratic Senate, which was pretty close to happening, uh, it would have had to have been addressed because it's collapsing on itself. It's, it's not sustainable. So I think we need to get back to that sort of along the lines of talking about tax reform in terms of who really benefits, which is workers, in terms of this health care issue, this is about a problem that we all face in terms of the escalating costs and the unsustainable costs of the Affordable Care Act and our health care system generally. By the way, it wasn't great before the Affordable Care Act either. So remember, we all wanted to reform the tax code. The question was how we would do it and whether we would use market forces and make it more patient-centered and try to instill into the health care system the ability to lower costs and create more more choice. So that's that's where we are there. I don't know what's going to ultimately happen in the Senate, and we can talk again in more detail if you like during the Q&A. My focus has been 
on improving one of the programs that was expanded during the Affordable Care Act that in some respects is not connected to the rest of the Affordable Care Act, which is Medicaid. And, and I talked to you as someone who lives in an expansion state, understanding a lot of people are not in expansion states. In fact, only 20 or 22 of us, depending on how you count it, are in states that have expanded in the Republican caucus, which means the majority of my colleagues on the Republican side uh, do not have the same experience I have of going home and seeing how expansion has worked. And for me, uh, as you know, making a segue into the final thing I want to touch on, uh, this is an incredibly important program for those who have been affected by the opioid ep epidemic. This will be heroin, prescription drugs, now fentanyl. Uh, we believe that based on the numbers we're getting, and we're digging as deeply as we can, that 30% of the people who are on expanded Medicaid in Ohio are receiving mental health or drug treatment. Much more dramatic, 50% of the cost of expanded Medicaid is for that purpose. So 50%, 50% of the cost of expanded Medicaid in Ohio goes to mental health and substance abuse treatment. Uh, pretty shocking. But that shows you the degree to which this opioid crisis is at our state, but also the degree to which these people, a lot of whom are single adults who have been brought into Medicaid through the expansion, are the target in the sense of the affliction of uh, opioids, opioids in our state. And, um, you know, the grip of this epidemic is not identical in every state, but it is everywhere. And so I am trying to ensure that as we go through this, we're cognizant of that, and we end up with a way to ensure those people don't have the rug pulled out from under them, which is not easy to do, given the context of many states that haven't expanded. But in order to get my support and the support of some of my other colleagues, uh, we're going to have to address that issue. Uh, there are other issues as well, including pre-existing conditions, to make sure that that is indeed covered. Uh, but I think, again, I think we can work through these issues, and we must, because the current system is totally unsustainable. So with all the fury uh, and uh, all of the uh, drama going on in this town, uh, we have to, I think, refocus on some of these policy issues and redouble our efforts. Uh, and thanks to the, the reconciliation process, we have a chance to do this in ways that we would not otherwise, given the partisanship uh, that is growing here in, in this town. The final one I want to just mention quickly and then open up to your, your questions is not a matter of the economy or a matter of the well-being of people's of people's health care. It's really a matter of sort of the, the soul of our country. This is this opioid epidemic and what should we do? And here we have an interesting situation in Congress because despite all the partisanship in this issue, we've been able to stay together. And so it was mentioned about the Comprehensive Addiction Recovery Act. The other one is the Cures Act, 21st Century Cures Act. Uh, most recently, uh, there is a couple of bills with Democrats uh, with broad support on both sides to deal with the fentanyl epidemic. One is the Stop Act, so you call to sign. Another is the Prescription Drug Monitoring Bill. And, and here, uh, I'm just committed to keeping this not bipartisan, but nonpartisan. And it has to, because again, this is, goes to the very core of who we are. And sadly, in our country today, uh, we do have the worst drug crisis ever measured by number of overdoses, number of deaths, number of people who are addicted, and I think really the intensity of the addiction. And uh, I'm not a medical doctor, uh, but as I tell my kids, I do have a Juris Doctor degree. So. <laughs> but I have probably visited with a thousand addicts or recovering addicts in the last few years. And just in the last last weekend, I was at two treatment centers again, and I spent a lot of time on this issue, as some of you know. And I, I think you know we're at a point where things are getting worse, not better, and yet Congress is responding. And I think to be able to turn the tide, it's got to be comprehensive, and it has to engage the community more. 
and that's what we've been focused on. So as of this week, uh, finally, the Comprehensive Addiction Recovery Act is being implemented. The funds are starting to go out. It takes a while in this town, and that's understandable in a way because you want to make sure the money is properly spent and that the taxpayer dollars are uh, you know, properly vetted. You go through a process of applying for grants. You want to be sure there's a system in place. The Obama administration, now the Trump administration, have, uh, have finally got those programs moving forward. Uh, the 21st Century Cures Act funding, which goes to the states directly as opposed to uh, folks who are on the front lines, nonprofits, uh, has now gone out. As of two weeks ago, that money is starting to go out. Uh, Ohio just got $26 million, which we're going to focus on uh, with, with treatment uh, options for people, which is very important right now. Eight out of ten people who have this addiction are not seeking treatment. We need to get them into treatment. And, uh, and then finally, we have an opportunity, again, with some of this new legislation to help in terms of the fentanyl crisis and also prescription drug overprescribing. So I think Congress, you know, <coughs> taking a little while to get there, it took us three years to get the CARE legislation moving. Um, we did a lot of research. We had five conferences here in D.C., brought the best experts in from around the country. We really tried to do this right. I do think it can make a difference. And if I didn't think that, I, I wouldn't be standing here before you as a U.S. Senator because I, I do think, getting back to the beginning of this conversation, that despite, again, all the all the uh, distractions out there, we have a chance, those of us in this room, uh, uh, you know, as citizens and again as representatives of various constituencies, to continue to make progress. And that's our responsibility. So whether it's on helping workers be able to get a little more in the paycheck uh, every week, uh, whether it's helping people to be able to know that they can have affordable health care for themselves and their families, or whether it's beginning to address uh, this epidemic of opioid addiction around our country, uh, I'm, I'm excited about going forward and working on these issues over the next few months. And I do think that this is a critical time and we can't lose sight of it as we, again, get distracted on, on other issues. Uh, so thank you for letting me come by and, and talk about these three issues today. And uh, as always, to get the great input from our rip on, rip on friends here in the room. Thank you very much.